Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. Joining you as always, Mr. Mark Hamilton and Mr. Mark O'Daly. Mr. Mark O'Danger, O'Denver, <laughs> O'Driver, O'Denmark, O'Daffodil. My friend, it is, my goodness, July 29th. We're days away from the Hungarian Grand Prix and the summer break. How are you? I am doing not too bad tonight. Hey, it's Thursday night. It's almost weekend, so that's exciting. And yes, we got a race and then, what, three weeks, three and a half weeks of radio silence. Well, not radio silence, but it will be pretty quiet for a couple of weeks here as Formula One goes into the summer break. But we're not quite there right. just yet. But yeah. otherwise, I'm good. And, well, we got stuff to talk about tonight, like actual things. Absolutely. And where else to start but once again, Red Bull the FIA, Mercedes, Max Verstappen, and Lewis Hamilton. It's the story that just keeps on giving as much as none of us want anything to do with it. Okay, so a little background here before I start uh, talking about this and giving you some thoughts on this. So the people I work with, God bless them, super nice people, but they got this weird habit of following me around the office when I'm checking out Formula One news and then recording it. <laughs> so this is me. This is like a, a couple of like outtakes or not outtakes, but actual clips of me going through the Formula One, like doom scrolling through the the F1 uh, Twitter feed this morning. This is my, my initial reaction when I saw that they'd made this appeal and then what their basis of their appeal was. Th this is take. This is the first instance. No! Okay, so that's number one. Now, as I started going in through and seeing what their their actual case was, this was my next reaction. Uh, what? Uh, uh, oh no! Uh, the fucks? Uh, yeah, me. <laughs> me. Okay, so maybe that was some clips of Homer Simpson and Beavis and Butthead, but still, that basically sums up my entire reaction to this and. Oh, man, I, I don't even know what to, to to make of this. Like, I thought if they're going to go and try to do this, they must have some something to go with. But wow, it, talk about weak sauce. I'm really quite surprised that their case all basically tried, they're basically hinged on sending Alex Albon out in the car on a filming day to basically what drive around the track and take the same lines that Lewis Hamilton did and try and. <laughs> prove what i completely agree we uh, had a really great spaces session tonight and this was obviously the principal topic and it really got the conversation going but i don't think we could really come to any degree of consensus about what the motivation would have been here and you make such a great point in the sense that they had nothing and mm -hmm. when we came out of that weekend and again we talked about this at length on that sunday horner was hot marco was hot Max Verstappen was hot. I And even at that time, I, I kind of gave them a little bit of space and I gave them a little bit of runway because I kind of recognized that this was an emotional position. It was a high-speed crash. It was a costly crash. Max was 
kind of shaken up. But ultimately, the verbiage that was coming out of that team was still a little bit too pointed, a little bit too aggressive. And ultimately, I assume that, you know, give it 24 hours, give it 48 hours, the rhetoric's going to calm down, the messaging's going to die down, the social media team, the media, the PR group's going to get a hold of this one, they're going to redirect focus, we're going to focus on Hungary, we're going to get the car back together, it's a racing incident, we move on, we recognize, we respect the penalty that the FIA handed down to Lewis Hamilton. But the challenge was, the rhetoric that really began on that Sunday with Helmut Marko and Christian Horner specifically, and they said some very pointed things and made some very pointed criticisms of the Mercedes team the Lewis Ham- uh, and Lewis Hamilton. Mm-hmm. It didn't stop. And it just seemed to build more and more momentum. And it became pretty clear pretty quickly that they weren't satisfied with the penalty that was given to Lewis at Silverstone, which was that 10-second penalty. But ultimately, that they wanted more and they were out for blood. And I think one of the things that I'm really struggling to understand is what was the motivation? Was it that they went in so aggressively on the Sunday in terms of their rhetoric and their messaging? And it was pretty aggressive messaging, especially in terms of the criticism of Hamilton. Was it that they just went in so hot on the Sunday that they couldn't then peel away and step back from that and just let the situation flow, but that they went so hot initially, they didn't have any choice but go to the FIA and beg for a review of the penalty. But ultimately, you're absolutely right. And we'll talk about about this a little bit. It's a terrible look for Formula One. I don't think that, and we talked about this tonight as well, I don't think that Red Bull has done anything to curry favor with this huge new base of fans that are coming into the Formula One ecosystem and the sphere of influence that is Formula One. If anything, what they've done here is promote a sense of disconnect and arrogance and Mm -hmm. ultimately potentially turned off traditional fans and absolutely turned off new fans. This was a bad look for Formula One. I think it was a bad look for the FIA. I think it absolutely did sully the reputation of Lewis Hamilton, the Mercedes team. And again, I don't want to be an apologist for Mercedes. They're a powerful entity and they don't need me to do it. And I also don't want to come across as too much of a Mercedes homer, but I think this entire experience is a black mark on the season. Yeah, absolutely. And for, I, I mean, everybody's probably uh, read or heard this at this point. But anyways, the, for those of you that are still catching up on this, their case, Red Bull's case, that is hinged on four pieces of evidence that they submitted to the FIA. So number one was GPS ab- available to the team uh, from both Hamilton's and Verstappen's cars. A GPS uh, data drawing with various alleged comparisons of the line taken by Hamilton when uh, passing Charles Leclerc at Cops later in the race at the very same corner. Alleged lap simulations of the incident and what was described as a reenactment of Hamilton's one lap line at Silverstone based on a lap allegedly driven by Alex Elbon, probably the guy that showed up to Silverstone wearing a paper bag over his head, wondering what the hell did I do in my career? What did I do wrong to be relegated to to doing this sort of uh, nonsense? Okay. Now, on Monday night, when we did Mailbag Monday, we were asked about some of the things that we do when we're not into Formula One. So I'm going to draw my own professional experience now. So I mentioned by profession, I'm a professional land surveyor. I work with GPS data on, you know, every day of my life, right? So two things here. So GPS data, unless you're using a survey grade GPS receiver, it's real-time kinematic, which is going to get you know, give you plus or minus an inch horizontal accuracy. Not out of the realms of a massive expense for a Formula One team, 
because uh, you know survey grade uh, GPS runs at about fifty grand Canadian a unit. But the catch is here: a, a GPS unit with the the, the receiver is about eight, in, eight inches in diameter, and it's got a probably about a three inch base on it, and then it's got a Bluetooth connection, everything like that. So I'm just wondering how accurate is their their GPS data? And I mean, we use uh, GPS uh, like uh, kinematically to to map things. You know, you don't have to just run uh, point to point. You can put on the side of a quad, on the side of a truck, whatever. I mean, they use it in farmland to map things like that. So it's possible. I'm just wondering how accurate uh, is this? You know, this this GPS data, and then this GPS data drawing okay how how accurate is this i mean we are we talking a couple inches here or if it's anything less which would be meters which obviously doesn't help so i'm thinking it's uh, somewhere in between so you know this doesn't you know smell too good on the old sniff test to me so i'm highly suspicious of that plus the alleged lap simulations and then also this lap reenactment of it i mean i think we all came to the consensus on the day thereof that lewis went too hot into the corner yep max had to turn in at some point and it all came to tears right so I, I really don't know what they're trying to prove at this point. I mean, they're obviously standing up for their guy. They're they're obviously standing up for something on principle, but this almost seems laughable to me. I mean, terrible like animated comedy clips aside that I played off the top of the show. But I mean, that's almost the amount of disdain that I have for that. You know, th- this whole thing. And again, I'm not being well. I mean, I'm putting Red Bull on blast, and I'm not trying to go out of my way to defend Mercedes much like yourself and I'm not trying to be a homer I'm trying to be impartial in this uh, you know for, for those of you that are ready to start putting us on blast for defending Lewis and for uh, defending a Mercedes if you're in the Max camp I'm just trying to look at it objectively and I I still agree with the, like a lot of the former drivers that have come out and said you know what this was a racing incident and this, you know, this just leaves such a bad taste in the mouth for me, Mark. It, it really does. The fact here we are two weeks later, and this is the best that they could come up with. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more. And I would actually disagree that we're even trying to stick up or defend Mercedes. One, because they don't need it. But two, I think our criticism here is not so much of the incident, because I think you and I have made peace with that, that, you know, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, the steward's decision was fair. If if they if they ruled 50-50, if they ruled that Max was at fault, if they ruled that nobody was at fault, if they ruled it a racing incident, I could have accepted all of that. In fact, I was absolutely acceptive of the 10-second penalty that was given to Lewis Hamilton. I think what it, it was really left a distaste in my mouth is exactly what you're speaking to, which is all of the fallout since then, all of which, all of which has been a byproduct of the way that Red Bull has handled this case. And I think yeah. there's a couple of bigger issues too, is one, this was a racing incident and maybe it wasn't a racing incident. Maybe there was some contact. Hamilton was at fault. He went to that corner a little bit hot, but at the end of the day, they were racing. It was two of the best drivers on the planet, racing two of the most powerful race cars on the planet in one of the fastest corners in Formula One. There was contact. It happened end of day as a part of the sport. I think the danger here is that Red Bull could potentially create a precedence that every single time there's contact on the track, we go into this two-week process of litigation. Do any of us want to live in a world where every single piece of contact on the track revolves or evolves or devolves into a 10-day sprint to get evidence in front of the FIA to Mm -hmm. review the penalty? None of us want to live in that world. And if we live in that world, what is the point of having stewards at the track to begin with? What, What 
Red Bull has done here is undermine the authority of the stewards at the track. They've made Formula One look bad. They've made the FIA look bad. Ultimately, they've damaged the sport. And furthermore, the challenge now, too, is this precedence is set, and it wasn't a particularly egregious moment of contact. Again, I mm-hmm. still believe it was a racing incident. I accept the penalty. Fantastic. Move on. But what happens if other teams start to take this as a template for how they're going to react to contact in the p- future if it costs them a car, if it costs them a position on the grid, if it costs them points in the championship? It's not a good look. It's a bad position for Formula One to be in. And I hope that Chase Carey, I hope that Liberty, I hope that Domenicali and Ross Braun get Christian Horner and Helmut Marco on a conference call and have some really stern words with them about the fact that you put the sport through 10 days of litigation in the media and you came up with nothing that you came up with absolutely nothing. And I'll refer to a tweet that Will Buxton put out earlier today, which Mm -hmm. is a perfect summary of the stewards decision here, which was, and I quote, the stewards dismiss Red Bull's request for a review of Hamilton Silverstone penalty, determining the evidence provided was neither new or significant and has been created rather than discovered. So what they presented was either established fact it was information that was already readily readily available on the record, or they manufactured it. And they manufactured it by putting Alex Albon out there. This is all unprecedented. It's, It's a terrible, terrible look. And furthermore, and I think the final piece of this is, and we can only speculate as to the language, but the cover letter of the submission of the complaint that they sent to the FIA and Mm -hmm. nobody outside of very few people, including a few people at Mercedes have seen this apparently had some very, very, very problematic language. And and I'll add to that uh, Jonathan Noble, uh, writing for motorsport.com, did a great piece on this. But one of the things that he wrote here was that the stewards noted with some concern that certain allegations, and I quote, certain allegations made in the competitors above letter, such allegations may or may not have been relevant to the stewards. If the petition for review had been granted, the stewards may have addressed these allegations directly in the decisions that would have followed the petition having been dismissed. And that was prefaced by furthermore, that there seems to have been, I don't know, man, like I'm, I'm getting really worked up on this one because I don't like where the sport is as a byproduct this fall. So I'm going to stop there because I think I'm going to get too emotional and let my thoughts run away with themselves. But I don't like the look. I don't like whatever was presumably in that cover letter because I think it was unsubstantiated and possibly fairly personal either towards Lewis and Mercedes or the FIA itself. I don't like the fact that they dragged the sport through 10 days of litigation, despite the fact that they had nothing to substantiate their claims and that they had to manufacture something. It's just terrible. All of this is terrible. You know, it makes me wonder, did they, I, I mean, it makes me wonder a lot of things, but it just, I think just on the PR side, I think it has massively backfired on Red Bull. I've seen so much talk from people, you know, just straight up saying, you know, I'm done with Red Bull. You know, this, this is complete garbage. And they're, they're just, uh, you know, completely fed up with them. And I just kind of wonder, like, what was their motivation behind? Well, I know what their motivation was, but I mean, it just, it was so extreme. I mean, why not just to, if you're going to go to this like level you know, go completely thermonuclear. Like, why not just go whole hog? Why not uh, get celebrity lawyers like Johnny Cochran involved? You know, like, like, why not just go completely off the deep end? Because it just seems so out of proportion. I mean, I can understand you're upset. It, it cost your guy the race. It cost him 25 points. You know, the guy that caused the accident won the race. Plus, on top of it, you have to eat almost $2 million in damage to a car, which is now just a, a pile of expensive 
you know, garbage, right? Yeah. So I, I get all of that, but I I really don't understand how they figured that they were going to make this stick. It, it just seems like it was get something, throw it at the wall, see what sticks, and hopefully that will will come out of this in a in a favorable uh, position. But I mean, obviously, it was rejected by the FIA. I mean, from a PR point of view, I think it's completely blown up in their face. And uh, I, there, there's a great quote here in the live chat from uh, Nigel Veli, who says, "RBR don't need to curry any favor with fans, new or old. Max is such an incandescent star. It doesn't matter how villainous RBR acts. He's like Loki, technically on the side of evil, but super popular. I think I think that's a great point. And he had made another uh, comment too. Is that uh, Max is being smart and letting Red Bull do all the dirty work. He's keeping his hands clean outside of saying their celebration was uh, disrespectful. So I think there's a couple of uh, interesting comments there in the live chat. I think that's really interesting feedback. And I'm curious to know your thoughts on this. If we were trying to dissect what the motivating, what the motivation was for Christian and, and Helmet here, they clearly had no evidence. So either they had some degree of institutional arrogance that they felt that they could go to the FIA and present anything and get a favorable ruling, or Mm -hmm. they just went so hard on that Sunday in terms of their criticism at the Mercedes team and at Lewis Hamilton that they couldn't turn back, right? Like they just went so hot. They went so hard. Like, Oh my God, we put ourselves in a position where now we literally have to follow through. We may not, we may not upon reflection the next morning, we may, may not ultimately have believed anything that we were saying on Sunday, but we were just so candid and so forthright with our feelings on that situation that we're now obligated to follow through. And then maybe out of desperation, they were put in a position where they had to, as one of our listeners, Andre said earlier, begin to manufacture evidence in terms of let's put, let's put Alex Albon on the track for a quote unquote filming day, even though we have alternative motivations for having being out there. It's just it's it's mind boggling to think what their what their principal motivation or their confidence was in terms of pursuing this. And we'll probably never know. But I think, as I said a couple of minutes ago, not only was all of this problematic, I'm very curious to know what it was that was in that cover letter that the FIA alluded to as being problematic. Was it a personal criticism of the FIA? Was it a personal criticism of Lewis? Was it allegations of unsubstantiated cheating or uh, driving behaviors in the past? I'm sure eventually it will leak out, at least in some form. And I know there were some folks on Twitter tonight that were alluding to the fact that they knew what the content was. And some people were alluding to the fact that it was allegations of um, past misconduct by Hamilton. Others were alluding to the fact that potentially it was a very personal criticism of the FIA. But ultimately, now, if I'm the FIA, we've been dragged through this. You put our stewards on a blast because you didn't trust, you didn't believe in the penalty that was uh, awarded, not awarded, but uh, assigned to Lewis Hamilton on the day of the Grand Prix. Then you waste our time by coming to us with with empty morsels, like not, not, not a good look whatsoever. Yeah, absolutely. I do have a couple of uh, comments, replies to this. We'll do so after we take our very first break here. So don't go away. We'll be back in just one moment. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, 
Your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And yeah, Mark, going back to this whole rejection of the Red Bull appeal to the FIA for this Silverstone incident, which I am just beyond done with talking about now. It's uh, literally getting to the point every time I hear it, like, la, 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 the fingers in the ears and just try and block it out no matter what I can do. But I think you really made a, a really, really good point when you said that they just went so hard at it at Silverstone that it got beyond the point of just trying to digest a massive piece of humble pie and walk it back after the race that they had to follow through with it. And what they came up with was, you know, it, it was just never going to to go anywhere. I mean, just right off of the top of the show there, I mean, basically just my poor jokes aside was just trying to poke some holes in, in what I think was a misguided attempt almost to try and, 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 and do something i don't know it's just it it's just laughable now <laughs> and i i guess the, the the whole point is when you look at it significant and relevant evidence sure i i guess that's maybe objective to whichever party is looking at it but i mean doing what they did i mean they, they had to rely on something on telemetry or something like that that would have really proven it or Again, is you'd have to prove intent on the behalf of uh, Lewis Hamilton. Is, is is that's what precisely he meant to do? Was you know contact with Max, knock him off the road, knock him out of the race, and then also by some miracle not damage his own car. Right? Even Absolutely. though some people have made the, the the observation was that he was able to to get his car re- re- repaired with duct tape and and stuff like that or whatever it was under the red flag, which he based excuse me, which he caused, right? Which I think is a fair observation, but I don't know. It's just like, how far do you take the conspiracy theories? And and furthermore, and I absolutely agree with all of your point, but furthermore, if you're frustrated with the penalty that was given to Lewis Hamilton, don't make this personal and make it about Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes. Make this about the decision-making and the application of penalties with the FIA, and of which, by the way, as a signing member of the Concord Agreement, you are a party to ultimately all of the teams, Formula One, Liberty, the FIA, they're all decision makers in the construct that is Formula One and the rules that govern the sport. But ultimately, furthermore, if you're upset with the fact that a car can be repaired under the red flag, well, again, Mercedes didn't do anything wrong in that case. You know, I get it. The optics aren't necessarily good that ultimately Lewis made contact with you, ended your race, and he was able to have his repair, his car repaired under the red flag. But that's that's not a criticism, nor should it be a criticism of Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton. That's just the reality of the sport. And if that's not something that you like, you need 
need to visit that when the team sit down with the FIA and with Liberty and discuss mm-hmm. the rules moving forward. And maybe that's something that needs to be changed, but this is ultimately not something that should lay at the feet of Mercedes and Lewis. And I want to be careful again, because we're, we, we're so frequently criticized for being too Red Bull centric, although the last couple of weeks we've been criticized for being too Mercedes centric. <laughs> but ultimately, the criticism needs to be at the, the governing body in a sense that it isn't necessarily today. And the other thing too, and we talked about this a little bit on the Spaces chat tonight, and this is far more speculative than I think ultimately anything else. But you look at Christian Horner and you look at Helmut Marco, and they've been with that organization since the beginning of time. Red Bull is flush with cash. That team has resources, both financial, logistical, and from an infrastructure perspective that most teams could only dream of. With all, with all, with all due respect, this is the first season that's been meaningful from them from a competitive perspective since 2013 when they won their last championship, right on the dawn of the V6 turbo hybrid era. So they won the title in 10, 11, 12, 13. They had a phenomenal run to cap the V8 era. They've not been the Red Bull of the V8 era since we've been in the V6 uh, era. But that said, they've still had relatively the same resources, both financial, logistical, and from an infrastructure perspective in terms of access to suppliers and the factory and all those kind of pieces. So they're in a really great spot. My point being, I have to wonder at what point the leadership from a executive perspective at Red Bull starts leaning into Christian and Helmet and start asking for results, right? Like Mm -hmm. you talk about this 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. That's a lot of years to go without a championship given the resources that are made available to those two individuals. And you look at Helmet, he's the he's the only person that has a tool or a toy like a second Formula One team to help develop young drivers. And obviously we saw what happened the last couple of years. The entire situation with Alex Albon, Gasly, that was a disaster. It was a bad look. And ultimately, they had to go outside of their driver academy to find somebody to fill the second seat at Red Bull, despite the fact that they have arguably the richest driver academy in all of motorsports. And then furthermore, if I'm Christian Horner, I haven't been able to deliver a championship now in eight years. Perhaps these guys are feeling pressure. Perhaps there's an ultimatum on them to deliver this year. And I I have to think, and this is just speculative, that Helmet might not be back next year. I think partly because I think he's probably due, and I I mean this with all due respect, um, the opportunity to retire and step away from motorsport and maybe let somebody else take over that academy. But I think Christian Horner's probably feeling the heat as well. And I'm not saying that in the sense that there's some other team principal lined up ready to go to take over, but I have to think that they're starting to feel some of the pressure. And maybe this was a, a bit of a release valve for them this year in the sense that the championship was within sight all of this happened, and now it's starting to slip away from them once again. Yeah, you know, some great points there. I mean, wh- one thing um, that, that I thought he was really good that you mentioned was just the, the the struggles that they've had with their driver academy. It's not only have they been able to, or they've, they've not been able to promote these drivers and, and get somebody that's really been able to take that, that second seat with the big team. 
and, and really grow into it so they could get that one-two punch like they had with the Danny Ricardo. But the thing is, a couple of years ago, they didn't have enough drivers in the academy that could actually qualify for a super license. And, and, oh, and to me, that point. was just, you know, just that, that's a mind blower. It's just like the whole point of having this academy is that there's this pipeline of drivers coming up through the system so that if you need drivers, that they're they're available. And when, when you hear things that they don't have their enough uh, guys that have uh, their super license, that's why they had to go back and basically call Danny Kvyat out of the wilderness, wherever he was. I mean, reserve or simulator driver yeah. for Ferrari, right? <laughs> And give him, I, I mean, he did a good job, I think. Uh, I mean, he came back and kind of redeemed himself a little bit in Torpedo 2.0, you know, compared to where he was earlier in his career. But I mean, that was just a, an incredible uh, situation. But you also make some great points. And I mean, it's purely speculation, but you have to wonder that those above Horner and Marco and, you know, the the the, the, the big brass at Red Bull, you know, could be turning the screws a little bit. And, and very much like you say, guys, you know, we've gone now almost a decade without a championship and we haven't really won that many races either. I mean, a, a couple of races here and there every season. Yeah, okay, that's nice, but that's not what we're here to do. So it really makes you wonder that we're, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of self-imposed pressure, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I think that's a great point that you make that, that there could be pressure coming from somewhere else. And it, it really just felt like this was a real blowing off of steam because it like i said a little earlier it just seems so out of proportion to the end exactly and i mean if lewis goes on to win the championship now and and they struggle are will they just go back and 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 just blame this as the turning point that regardless if we have what nine ten races to go whatever it is that's or probably less but will they will they use this as the crutch to you know or use this as the excuse that ultimately why the championships or a championship got away from them i don't know absolutely and i don't want to sound too dramatic but ultimately if they didn't respect the ruling of the stewards during the grand prix they're probably not ultimately going to be happy with the fact that their request to have that penalty reviewed wasn't Mm. accepted and to your point if mercedes do manage to put together a great run here and, and take on the championship or win a championship or win both championship are Red Bull going to be gracious? Are are they potentially going to seek further litigation? What happens if a Red Bull car ultimately is found at fault for an incident and a crash? How does that look? Yeah. How do they respond? What if they hit a Mercedes car? What position does that put in Mercedes? And is Mercedes under pressure to pursue the same type of action against them? It's it's tricky. Sure it is all, not. and I agree. And I don't think they would, but I just I feel like we've been launched into uncharted waters as a byproduct of their reaction to that that crash at Silverstone. Yeah. Finally, I think I, I hope we can put this one to bed. But uh, Mercedes said that they hope that the FIA's ruling earlier today will end what they call Red Bull's attempts to tarnish Lewis Hamilton and his reputation and. Well, I mean, if, if if Red Bull is standing up for their driver, then I think this is Total Wolf and Mercedes uh, standing up for for their driver. And I mean, I think we've talked about it uh, before that uh, I don't think we've ever seen any indication from Lewis Hamilton that that he's a dirty driver or made uh, too many you know bad judgment calls in in, in the past. And you know. It is what it is. I mean, I think if I say anything more, then I'm going to get those uh, start yelling at me for being a Hamilton apologist and a Hamilton homer, but. Whatever. I, I, again, I'm trying to be objective, and I'm trying to be kind of tread the, the the middle line in this very touchy subject. But hopefully, 
I, I in, in this case, I do agree with them. Hopefully, they can put this, uh, you know, get this black mark off of uh, Lewis Hamilton. Maybe that's a bad uh, choice of words, but you know, th- this tarnish, right? Yeah, you, you know, right. yeah, th- this, yeah, you know what I mean, right? One hundred percent. And I think for us, I think this is probably a great place to walk away from the subject and hopefully once the cars get on the track in a couple of hours and free practice one commences and free practice two commences, we can get back to focusing on racing and put this entire situation behind us. And hopefully we have a great Grand Prix weekend. Hopefully it's Mm -hmm. close. It's competitive. We have a lot of fun out there. And then we can go into the summer break on a high note and talk about the things that are really important to us, such as where George Russell is going to drive next year and stories associated with Valtteri Bob. So hopefully we can get back to the stories that we're all really interested in. But if you're ready to move on from this topic, my friend, I definitely am ready to move on from this topic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we're talking about this in a month, I say we just like pull the plug and walk away from this thing for good. I, I totally <laughs> agree. I'm, I'm well and truly and done with all this. of our listeners would be long gone by that point. Anyway. <laughs> Even the hardcore would probably walk away at that point. Absolutely. And talking about walking away, I think this is a, a perfect opportunity to draw a line under this one. Take a break. Come back after the 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 the, uh, the, the short break here and talk about Valtteri Bottas. I mean, <laughs> get back to do what we do most or do best, and we'll do that in just a moment. So, guys, don't go away. We'll be back in just one moment. Okay, everybody, welcome back. And all joking aside, I don't know if we have a Valtteri Bottas story this week. I know you're heartbroken about that. But the one thing that uh, you did put in the outline tonight is that Formula One is going to approve this double test session for Barcelona and Bahrain in early 2022, which I think is uh, great. And as we talked about a couple of days ago, absolutely logical, makes a ton of sense. What with the new cars coming in? And when you see how many teams have you know, struggled right out of the gate this year and drivers like Ricardo, drivers like Vettel, who didn't have a very either didn't have a lot of time in the car winter testing in that shortened uh, testing session there season that we had or just did, did not have a productive uh, winter test that this is just a good thing because, I mean, these cars are just going to be completely different uh, next year and i think it's kind of cool i mean the 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 fact that we're going to be going to barcelona third week of february then a two-week break in between to get everybody from spain to the middle east and then we're going to do it again in bahrain for three days starting march 11th and then we're going to have the season kickoff there in the desert which i think is uh is is just you know I, i think it just makes a lot of sense especially in the cost cap era and I think it's kind of cool. Really looking forward to this one. I'm very excited. And to kind of set up what next season is going to look like, we're going to run through really the, wow. I'm just in my head now beginning to understand how short the winter break's going to be. So we're going to see Formula One racing right up until the middle of December. We're going to be racing until two weeks before Christmas, which is crazy. At that point, Formula One goes into a two-week shutdown for the winter break. The teams light up in January with last-minute preparations. So they are going to have a month to get the cars ready because throughout the first three weeks of February, we're going to have each of the individual teams unveiling their cars. And this is a big piece. Last year, some of the teams did a fantastic job of doing all of this virtually through social media. Historically, they do big events. They'll go to a car show. They'll stage a special event. They'll have a party, do it at a concert, all kinds of cool stuff. So we're going to finish the Formula One season in the middle of December 
December. The sport shuts down for two weeks so everyone at the factory can enjoy some time with their family. January, at least from a Formula One team perspective, is going to be bonkers. The first three weeks of February are going to be unveil, unveil, unveil. And just like you said, these will probably be some of the most highly anticipated car reveals we've ever had simply because none of us really know what these cars are going to look like. And it's going to be fascinating to see what angles different teams take, what, what aero philosophy they incorporate, what the position of the car looks like, what the air boxes look like. It's going to be crazy. So I'm super excited about that. I'm excited to see what the liveries look like on the new cars. It's going to be crazy. So we're going to have three weeks in February. The teams are rolling out their new cars, lots of time to talk, to react, to speculate and talk. And then bam, February 23rd, 24th, 25th, we're in Spain for three days of winter testing. That's going to be incredible because we're still going to be processing and digesting what we're seeing from these cars. And before you know it, they're on the track in the flesh. So we're going to see three days of the team shaking down these cars. I don't know how much we're going to learn, but I know those three days are going to be absolutely critical for those teams. They get three days on the track. They ship all the cars back to the factories. They do some last minute adjustments and let some last minute revisions. Then Mm -hmm. two weeks later, they ship all the cars to Bahrain for the 11th, 12th and 13th of March. They have three days of testing and then bam, a week later, the season opens in Bahrain and a week later we're in Saudi. So it's going to be a crazy winter. We basically have six weeks without any kind of formal Formula One. Then we're right into the car unveils, winter testing, winter testing, Bahrain, Saudi, and the season is off. It's going to be an incredibly short winter for us. Oh, and you know what, dude, I'm so excited right now to move our March Madness up a couple of weeks to do it in February and get that bracket going. I love it. It was awesome. It was so much fun. I think that's one of the funnest shows I've done in the entire time I've been podcasting where we did our bracket for the best looking car of 2021. And I'm just so stoked. I can't wait to see the first car that gets revealed in the winter. You just know it's going to be a massive massive event whoever gets out of the shoot first it doesn't even matter if it's Haas or one of the smaller teams whoever comes out with their their car first is going to generate a ton of press and is going to just generate a ton of comments either good or bad and i'm just uh, i i really can't uh, wait for it to to come and and that's you know in light of the fact that we still have a season to go in front of us with real racing until we get to the end of the season in you know two weeks before christmas or whatever it was uh, you said but also another cool thing is that these so-called filming days that Ah. we've had for the past couple of years. So these are going to possibly be rebranded as shakedown days. They're going to be able to get to to be able to run more than 100 kilometers, which really isn't very much. They're going to be able to use the racing compound tires rather than these kind of uh, Mickey Mouse kind of um, tires that just don't have proper compounds on them. But Ross Braun, who's the managing uh, director of Formula One, he's very you know, energetic and he's, he wants to see this officially rebranded as a shakedown day and, or days, I should say, to give the teams like the, the proper time, proper opportunities to see the, you know, each of these teams, should they want to be able to run their cars properly before we get to the first group test in Barcelona at the end of February. I think that's awesome. So do I. And I think it's really important this season more than obviously 
any in the modern era for all the reasons that we just discussed. And to be clear, yep. one of the reasons that they parsed back so much of the testing that's been available in the past, and we talked about this previously, there used to be in-season testing. There was testing immediately after the final race. There was two weeks of winter oh, testing. Crazy. There was a lot going on. And one of the reasons yep. they obviously parsed that back was cost. They need to be able to make the sport more financially sustainable. They need to be able to get the operations under the cost cap, all those kind of pieces. But I think what mm-hmm. we saw last year was problematic because one, it was very challenging for drivers to become acquainted with a car after they switch teams with just three days of track time and two this year the teams are going to need every minute they can get on the track to familiarize themselves with the cars because my fear is if they don't have some real great opportunities between Barcelona, between Bahrain, and between whatever shakedown days they can get on the proper racing compounds, if they don't get some valuable time, we could see some really ugly racing come the first two or three races of the season as the teams are trying to figure out, I don't want Bahrain and Saudi to be glorified winter testing. I want those cars to show up and the teams to be relatively confident in the package that they're delivering. I don't want to be in a situation where the cars or teams are still feeling this out. And that may just be a necessary byproduct of the fact that these cars are so evolutionary and that it might have been a reality, even if they've had four weeks of winter testing, but whatever opportunity these teams can have to get the cars on track and glean data, I think is, is valuable. Even if it's kind of a one-off just this year, as we migrate into this new, new era of formula one, I think it's going to be valuable. Well, just from a PR point of view for Formula One, that we're going into this completely new era. This is going to be the first car that's really been pushed through by the 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 what do you want to call it? The stewardship of Formula One by by uh, Liberty Media. So they want to make sure that they get it right. I mean, the last thing that they want from you know the you know the governing part of Formula One is to show up and that these cars just aren't completely ready to go. The, the, the drivers don't understand how they, they they work and how the aerodynamics uh, work and all these different things that go into a, a Formula One car. And if they have like this reduced testing, which I, I completely understood, but this year it felt like it went too far the other way. I mean, if you dial it back to like the early 2000s or the 90s when they were in the cars just a ridiculous amount of time testing for whatever reason they wanted to, this was completely the other extreme, which I think it was it, it was too much in the, or it, it wasn't enough, I should say. And I think, uh, like you said, uh, some drivers really suffered uh, because of it. But if they don't give them enough time to shake it down to do the testing, then that could possibly take away from the spectacle. And I, I think you know they've really put a lot of stock into these um, the, these new cars, into this new formula, and that they're they're really hoping it's going to deliver the spectacle that they. Uh, Liberty Media, that is, is going to deliver for for what they want. That's a really great point and not something that I'd necessarily thought of even while I was making this point a few minutes ago, which is there's probably going to be an awful lot of eyeballs on the TV screen come back next March. And I think first impressions matter. And I think Liberty and the FIA and Formula One are going to want to put their best foot forward. They don't want to have seven, seven, unnecessary DNFs in the first race of the season because the teams haven't figured out their their arrow or f- haven't finished out their suspension or haven't figured out sure. the compounds of the tires. We, we want to have a really great competitive race from the first weekend forward. 
Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Mark, now this is a really kind of a cool one, and this is going to be a lot of fun to talk about. But Forbes magazine has come out with a list of the 10 highest paid drivers in Formula One. So there shouldn't be really any surprises here with some of the names who top this list, but I'm really surprised at where that drop-off is and where we are with uh, where, where the cutoff is at number 10. So according to Forbes, the top 10 drivers or earning uh, drivers in 2021, no surprise here, Lewis Hamilton at Mercedes, $62 million, which is obviously a very handsome sum of money to be earning this year. Max Verstappen, $42 million. Fernando Alonso from Alpine, $25 million. Sergio Perez, $18 million. To Sebastian Vettel, Aston Martin, $15 million. Charles Leclerc, $12 million. Valtteri Bottas, $10 million. Danny Ricardo, $8 million. Lando Norris, $9 million. And La- or sorry, Carlos Sainz rounding out the top 10, $8 million. Now, the one thing, I mean, I don't think there's any surprise there with uh, with Lewis and Max topping in, uh, you know, one and two. Fernando, that doesn't really surprise me, just considering who he is and, you know, him being Fernando. I would have expected he would have wanted a very big payday from Alpine. I don't think there's any real surprises maybe for Perez or Vettel, but I think that Ferrari are getting a hell of a good deal paying Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz a combined $20 million, which is only $2 million more than Red Bull are paying for Sergio Perez. I, I That really blew my mind, to be quite honest. Absolutely. I think the first thing we should probably caution is that this story from Forbes is difficult to substantiate. But having said that, unless they were very confident in the data that was made available to them or the data that they procured, Mm -hmm. I'd be surprised if they printed this. But that wasn't a takeaway that I had initially. But absolutely, are you ever right? When you look at this list, I get it. Lewis, number one, $62 million, seven times world champion. And I I believe that as Forbes describes it here, that's based on a split of $55 million in in core income and a $7 million worth of performance bonuses. And I don't know what the structure of that is, but potentially he could earn $62 million from from Mercedes this year. And of course, he's in a position where he also earns possibly tens of millions of dollars of additional revenues through associations and sponsorships and deals with Tommy Hilfiger, et cetera. Max number two, $42 million. But you're absolutely right. If you look at the bang for the buck, Charles Leclerc at $12 million a year and Carlos Sainz at $8 million a year, that is a screaming deal. And not only is Charles Leclerc earning relatively peanuts relative to some of the other drivers on this list. He's locked up for multiple years. That was a three-year mm-hmm. deal. So from Ferrari's perspective, and, and I know they received probably not a lot, but a little bit of criticism at the time that three years is rich for a young driver. When you're only paying that individual $12 million, why not? Commit to four, commit to $5 million. That's that's a screaming deal. And, and I wonder sometimes as well that if I'm Charles Leclerc and I look at this list when it becomes public, because driver salaries aren't generally made publicly available. We've talked about that in the past. But if I'm Charles Leclerc mm-hmm. and I see this list, I get it. I'm a multimillionaire. I have enough money to, to feed generations of my family if I invest that correctly. But if I look at this list, is Fernando Alonso worth double what what I'm earning? Is Sergio <laughs> Perez worth 33% more than 
than I'm earning. And of course, I think as long as he's not winning races, that's a difficult kind of conversation to have. But as we proceed into 2022, be very interesting to see what the impact is. And I guess the other conversation when we look at this number is we can start to inflect upon it or start to superimpose upon this what the impact of a driver salary cap could be. And we Mm -hmm. we have no understanding of what that could be, what that number is. Maybe the driver salary cap is $80 million per team and ultimately there's no impact to anybody. But if, for instance, that driver salary cap was $40 million a year, which would be more than sufficient for seven of the 10 teams, that means that a team like Mercedes would be in a really difficult position. And I speculated this before, and and I've had a few people reach out and suggest this might be the reason, but one of the motivating factors for Lewis and Mercedes to come to an agreement on a two-year deal as early as they did, rather than waiting until the offseason, was because Mm -hmm. they wanted to be in a position where if a driver salary cap was imposed, presumably Lewis would be grandfathered in and they wouldn't be subject to any sort of tax or any sort of penalty as a byproduct of going over. So I think they were trying to put Lewis in a position where he could cash in deservedly based on his past performances before a cap would come in. But when you look at this at $40 million as a cap, really doesn't impact most teams. $20 million, it starts to bite a lot of these teams. But ultimately, I think the other conversation too, and we've talked about this in the past, is one of the ways that you could potentially sell the drivers on a salary cap is by introducing a salary floor. Because as much as we're talking about Carlos and Lando and Daniel and Valtteri and Charles and Sebastian, we're not talking about all the drivers at the bottom of this list that are making 275k or a million dollars a year who might benefit from a salary floor. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, there's some very noticeable names that aren't in that in that list there. I mean, Esteban Alcon, who just uh, signed a new uh, deal with Alpine, Lance Stroll. Not that Lance necessarily needs the money coming from the Stroll family, but you know, it, it is interesting because I, I think that when it comes to these sorts of things, it's not necessarily these top drivers need the money, but it also it almost becomes sort of a prestige thing. It's just like you know, if I'm as good as these other guys, why am I only being paid a fraction of um, you know? You know my, my direct rival. I mean, it, but again, it just sort of blows me away. I mean, $72 million per year in salary for Mercedes, $60 million for Red Bull. And then you look at the bang for the buck, like you say, that Ferrari are getting for Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz at $20 million combined, I think is just uh, astonishing. I mean, also Ricardo and Norris, I think $19 million. I mean, uh, obviously, I think that maybe Ricardo's you know, coming off very well in that deal in a season which he's uh, struggled a little bit, you know, and to just to put it kindly, but still, I, I mean, when you look at that uh, that driver partnership on paper, I think again that's uh, been some very good business done by by McLaren. And I should add too that if these guys keep pro- progressing up, that when come come, uh, I guess the end of twenty twenty three, when Charles Leclerc's contract ends you can just imagine should he have a couple of good years should he be winning races and mixed up in that championship conversation between now and then that he would be able to cash in on a much more lucrative con uh, contract further down the line same with a guy like lando norris and who knows me even carlos Sainz. absolutely and to contextualize this a little bit as well i just pulled up the forbes 2020 nascar top earners and i'm I'm always big for context like those numbers from a formula one perspective don't make sense unless you can kind of index them against another big racing series but to contextualize this a little bit kyle bush the number one top earner in nascar uh his 
endorsements, licensing, and salary and winnings come in at $18 million a year, at least for the year most uh, most recently tallied. Jimmy Johnson, uh, total earnings, $18 million. Uh, Denny Hamlin, total earnings of $15 million. Uh, Kevin Harvick, total earnings of $12 million. Um, and then, yeah, it starts to decline pretty rapidly from there. So I think contextually, if you look at least at those top earners in Formula One, the Lewis Hamilton, the Max Verstappen, and the Fernando Alonso, they're out earning motorsports athletes anywhere in the world, which kind of reflects ultimately the stature of Formula One. And I'll be very honest, if if I was the drivers and I saw the financial trajectory that Formula One is on in terms of gaining traction and experiencing growth in the United States... There is no world under which I would accept a driver salary cap. And ultimately, Mm -hmm. if it was imposed upon us, I would do everything I could to rail against that or explore other driving opportunities. Because ultimately, if I could earn $20 million in NASCAR, maybe stock racing, and again, this is being super, super theoretical, assuming that you can make an easy transition from circuit-based open wheel to, to stock car racing. But again, if I'm a driver and I can see what the forthcoming financial trajectory is for Formula One, I'm not accepting a driver salary cap and nor should, and really nor should they. No, no. And I think that, uh, I, I think you're completely correct, but I mean, it is fun to talk about. It's fun to speculate about the, the, you know, this, you know, this whole idea of a driver's salary cap. And I mean, I know that there's nothing official being discussed, but it's just that old saying where there's smoke, there's fire. So it kind of makes you wonder where, you look where the sport has gone over the past year or so with the emergency measures put in at the start of the pandemic, the new Concord agreement, right. the, the the cost cap and all these other you know measures that they've they've put in to keep the you know to get the sport to a sustainable and manageable level for teams to compete. It just seems like it's the missing piece of the puzzle. So who knows? Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't, but it certainly doesn't mean that we won't not talk about it because it certainly is uh, quite a lot of fun to do so. Anyways, Mark, it's time to box, box, box. It's time to pull into the pits for a very brief break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Valtteri Bottas, but not really. And we'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Okay, well, welcome back to the show. And no, we're not going to talk about your favorite Finnish driver who is not Keke Rosberg or Kimi Raikkonen or Mika Hakkinen. But I'm just kind of being a little bit silly. But according to reports that are coming out of Italy, Mercedes wants to give George Russell's Williams seat to their Formula E driver, Nick DeFries. Now, of course, this is all contingent on the fact that at some point they are actually going to pull the trigger. They're going to make a decision as to what's going to happen with uh, both Valtteri Bottas and George Russell. I mean, the speculation has been out there for months that they are going to do something. They've been looking into getting Valtteri a, a seat somewhere else. And by doing so, that would free up his seat at Mercedes, bring George up, and which would get, uh, make an empty seat at Williams, who are obviously a Mercedes customer team. And that would be an ideal place to park a driver, no pun intended, like uh, Nick DeFries. What do you make of this uh, report, Mark? I feel like we're going to learn a lot more in the coming weeks. My sense is 
Mercedes is more than ready to make an announcement on George Russell, and we could debate and litigate forever whether that's the right move, but I think that is set mm-hmm. in stone. I think it's been set in stone since last winter. I think they're ready to make that announcement, and they will. The moment that Bottas has an agreement in his hands to go to a different team, uh, I think that based on everything we've seen and heard, it could be Alfa Romeo. We don't know, but I think as soon as as soon as Mercedes is in a position where they know that Bottas is free in the clear, he has a ride for 2022, they will very hastily call a press conference and announce George Russell. And part of that is because, and we've talked about this so much, they don't want the distraction going down the back half of the season as they contend for dual Mm -hmm. championships of this question mark about whether Bottas is coming back. If he's not coming back, who's going to replace him? If it's not George Russell, is George Russell going to go to another team? Are other teams stiffing around Russell? My sense is that Bottas is looking to finalize a deal with another team. Ultimately, Mercedes is going to announce George Russell. And then finally, we've got an opportunity for another young driver at Williams. And over the years, it's been hotly debated about what Williams' role is in terms of that dynamic and that relationship with Mercedes. Are they effectively a B team? Are they effectively an independent that does have some talent sharing linkages? Ultimately, I think Nick would be a great fit for that team. And we talked at length about the fact that it was an absurdity that somebody who had won the F2 championship didn't have a sniff at a Formula One seat last winter when individuals like Nikita Mazepan were getting to ride around in a Formula One whip. So I think this would be good. He's been competitive in Formula E, and I certainly wouldn't want to compare Formula E to Formula Two or Formula One, but I think he's been competitive enough. I think he's a great kid. I think from a values perspective and a personality perspective, I think he would be Mm -hmm. receptive and more than open to that role. I think he would be a good fit for the Grove-based squad. I think it's a great move, but I think some other things have to fall into place first. And I think the first thing is securing a seat for Bottas at another team, and I think Toto is invested in making that happen simply because he believes that to- that that Valtteri has been a great teammate and he's done everything the team's asked of him. So I think once he feels that Bottas's future, at least for the next year or two, is secure, they'll quickly make the announcement on George Russell just to put the issue to bed. And then, of course, that opens up an opportunity for somebody with Williams. And then I think subsequent to that, the second conversation is does Williams have two seats open for next year? Because obviously Nicholas isn't guaranteed to ride there next year either. You know, it really is interesting. If you look at some of the names that have been linked to Williams over the past uh, two, three weeks, whatever it is, Nico Hulkenberg, Danny Kvyat, Valtteri Bottas, Nick DeFries, and Guan Yu Zhu. So, and, and it's funny, I, I just, I guess maybe just because there is such a scarcity of Formula One teams and Formula One teams that actually have seats available, although Williams technically don't have a seat available at the moment, but it really is interesting to see all these names tossed about. I mean, I love Nico Hulkenberg. I just think that he's he's had his shot in Formula Completely One. Completely agree. Danny Kvyat, I think that he's had his chance in Formula One. Valtteri Bottas, I think he still has a lot to offer the right team in Formula One, although unfortunately, I think if you're, you're Valtteri, that perhaps your time with the you know you know one of the big dogs is probably over. And then guys like Nick DeFries and Guan Yu Zhu, I, I think that they're you know unknown quanti- uh, qu- you know quantities that have done well in other formulas, and uh, perhaps they are 
you know, maybe they're the next uh, big thing. But I think it is interesting just uh, potentially that, uh, you know, these guys or combination thereof could end up in a seat of if, Williams come if you, 22, right? If you had some influence over the Grove Bay squad next year, assuming you had two open seats. So, you know what, you, you either make a decision not to proceed with Nicholas or Nicholas finds a ride with another team that's looking for some strong sponsorship and investment. If you had two open seats, what would you look to do? Because I'm curious about your strategy. Would you go with two young drivers? Would you go with one young driver and a more established driver? Given that finances weren't necessarily an obstacle and you weren't necessarily reliant on a pay driver, what what direction would you go? Well, I, I think the you know the template that we've seen with Haas this year, going with uh, both uh, Schumacher and Mazepin, hasn't really worked out that well. I mean, for both of those drivers for completely different uh, reasons. But, you know, I mean, I would definitely take, say, a hot young prospect like a Mick Schumacher and put him in one of those seats at Williams, say, mm-hmm. in the scenario that uh, both of those seats are open. And then, you know, say, take that trio of Hulkenberg, Kvyat, and Bottas. I'm, I'm taking Valtteri Bottas because he's been with Mercedes now since 2017. He's won races. He's won championships. Williams now apparently has some money. They seem to be digging themselves out of the hole a little bit and of course uh, Bottas is a former Williams driver so there is that um, I guess historical team or team connection there but I would want to go that way I would think you know get 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 some experience in there and then also a a young prospect I I think that would be my preference I think that is probably the same direction I would go and I would be if I was Williams and I was based out of that wonderful Grove-based factory, I would be very open to a return of Valtteri Bottas, presuming that we could make the finances work and presuming that he was sure. engaged and excited about coming back. Because I think the risk of having two young drivers is you have two individuals that aren't familiar with the tracks the sport, the ecosystem, or the cars, and the feedback that they're giving to the engineers and the mechanics in terms of the setup and development of the car is probably pretty negligible. And going into a period of change where experience is probably going to be paramount in terms of setting up an entirely new concept in terms of Hmm. chassis and aero and suspension and braking, I would want to have somebody there that's been around for a while. So I think if I'm Williams, if I could bring in Valtteri Bottas simply for that experience, experience perspective. He's been around a world-class organization. He's seen how teams are managed. He's seen how mechanics function. And then I would probably partner him with Nick because I think Nick's going to be a very, very strong Formula One talent. And to your point, Nico, I love Nico. I think it was a great story last year when he came back and he had that seventh place points finish with, with force force India with racing point. I was heartbroken when he came back for the other race with uh, racing point and didn't get on the grid because of some mechanical issues, but I thought it was a great story last year to have him around. But even when he was in formula one, I wasn't particularly high on him. So I think I think his opportunities come and gone. I think he needs to explore an opportunity with Indy. Daniel Kvyat's had two opportunities. And as you alluded to earlier in the show, the second opportunity was a shot, uh, was a shock and almost a desperate move. But I think a great lineup for that team with Valtteri and Nick. I don't think Valtteri is going to be available because I think we would probably be hearing more. I think there would be more smoke in terms of the fire that would be the rumors. But 
I would love to see that. And again, given that he has familiarity with that team, and I think the other consideration too here, just to reinforce my point, is if you look back to 2017, that was Lance's first year in Formula One. They very specifically and tactically partnered him with Felipe Massa because they couldn't mm-hmm. afford to have two rookie drivers. They needed a senior driver because they needed somebody that could help guide Lance. And as it turns out, that didn't necessarily happen, but it was valuable having somebody else there in terms of development and setup of the car. In 20. 18 that was really the year that that team collapsed that was the year they had Sorotkin and Lance Stroll they had two extremely young drivers with very little Formula One experience and to me going back you can have conversations about Patty Lowe you can have conversations about all of the different things that led to the downfall of that team but I think that that was probably one of the precipices for that was the fact that they went an entirely entire Formula One championship season without having an experienced driver in that car. Yeah, you know, I uh, totally agree with you. I mean, just to kind of tie this one up now, this discussion, I mean, I don't really see what a team like Williams would have to gain for having, say, a partnership of two guys like Hulkenberg and uh, Kvyat. And, and and Bottas, I mean, by all accounts, he's a, he's a great teammate. I mean, Hamilton seems to say a lot of uh, good things about him, as does Total Wolf about being, you know, the ultimate team guy. So I, I think that, uh, you know, you could very much see a bit of a, a mentorship kind of a big brother kind of thing at Williams between Bottas and a guy like Nick DeFries, kind of like what we're seeing at Aston Martin with Vettel and, and Lance Stroll to a certain extent, even though Lance already has uh, obviously a couple of years under his belt. The, the, the my, my whole question is, if ultimately Bottas was to go back to uh, Williams, my, my only question is, if he go there, I think he would be invested in it. My only question is, does he want to take on a, a project like this at this point in his uh, career, or would he prefer to find a, another opportunity somewhere else within Formula One? So that, that that's my only real, that that's my big question about the whole whole situation there yeah yeah okay mark uh, let's take another quick break here when we come back we'll talk a little bit about saudi arabia talk about qatar and then we're going to look ahead to the hungarian grand prix excuse me i'm going to get a drink (laughs) of water and we'll do so we'll have a quick break come back in just a moment so don't go away we'll be right back Okay, well, welcome back to the show, Mark and Mark, Mr. Daly, Mr. Hamilton, talking all about the latest Formula One news. So, Mark, maybe you should take this one away because this one you were extremely worked up about. I mean, they call you Excitable Mark for a reason. And if uh, they were actually privy to our WhatsApp chats, it would be um, actually would have been very insightful because, well, wh- what did you take away? The, the possibility that we might see a bit of a switcheroo here between Abu Dhabi and Saudi the Arabia. Old- switcheroo my wife and i don't tend to gamble and we don't go to casinos and we don't buy lottery tickets but when we booked our airline tickets to the united arab emirates principally to see the season finale at abu dhabi in the middle of december we were absolutely gambling because we are booking expensive travel literally halfway across the globe during the middle of a Mm -hmm. global pandemic. So we knew that this was going to be a risk. So a couple (laughs) of days ago, when I was scrolling through my feed and I saw a story pop up from racefans.net indicating that the Saudi race could actually trade places with the Abu Dhabi race, I obviously had a heart attack. Now, on, on 
conceptually, it seems to make sense. And the reason that this might ultimately happen is one, the global circumstances are unique. We're experiencing things we've never seen before. But the consideration here is that currently the United Arab Emirates is listed as a red country or a red zone uh, by the United Kingdom. And that means that any British citizens or anyone flying from the United Arab Emirates into Britain at this time would have to quarantine for 10 days. So if they concluded the season in the United Arab Emirates and the teams flew out back to the UK for England, all of those team members, the mechanics, the personnel, the executives and the drivers would be in a position where they'd have to quarantine for 10 days. And presumably the teams in Formula One aren't particularly receptive to this. And of course, a lot of this could change in the coming weeks and months. Saudi, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia is not on the red list of countries. So the thought was that you switch the two races, you race in the United Arab Emirates, you race at Abu Dhabi, then a week later you race in Saudi, and then you only have to wait a couple of days until you get past that 10-day threshold so all the teams can fly back and land in the UK at Heathrow without having to quarantine. Now, ultimately, by the sounds of it, naturally, Yas Marina, Abu Dhabi aren't particularly thrilled with this concept. They pay a very, very rich hosting fee to have the final race of the season. They build all of their marketing, all of their sponsorship around that specific date. So I'm not certain it's going to happen. Now, personally, I can speak to this a little bit The United Arab Emirates currently, really cool country. My wife and I love it. She's spent a lot of her life there, um, is principally made up of two major cities. So in the United Arab Emirates, you have the city of Dubai and about an hour's drive south, you have Abu Dhabi. On the very north end of Abu Dhabi, you have this man-made resort island called Yas Island. And Yas Island is defined because it has a beautiful, huge shopping mall, Ferrari World, the big roller coaster theme park is attached to Yas Mall. You have a gigantic new Warner Brothers theme park, you have water parks, and you have golf courses and resorts and all that kind of stuff. But you have the Yas Marina circuit as well. So the Yas Marina circuit is immediately adjacent to Yas Mall and Ferrari World. For them, there are hotels, there are concerts, there are all all kinds of considerations here that if you were to move that race from Abu Dhabi a week earlier, you are potentially disrupting 50 or 60,000 people who have planning to fly in, who have booked hotel rooms, et cetera. So my wife and I, we went to book hotels for Yas Island because we thought, hey, last time we were there, we stayed in Dubai, but we actually drove down to Yas every single day. So it was an hour there, an hour back. But we realized we spend a lot of time on the road. So our plan this time was that we were going to stay at a hotel on Yas Island so we can roll out of bed in the morning, walk across the street and be at the track. Mm -hmm. We weren't able to do that because hotels were really, really, really expensive this time. So what we ended up doing was we got an Airbnb apartment downtown, which is about half an hour away. So we could stay near the Cornish in downtown Abu Dhabi. We can walk the beach. We could do some fun stuff downtown. It's only a half hour to the track. It's better than an hour on the highway. When this happened, mm-hmm. the first thing I did was I sent my wife a note. She jumped on Expedia and managed to book a hotel with track views on Yas Island for the proposed weekend if they do do the date swap. So I don't know about the other 60,000 people that would converge on Yas, but we're covered <laughs> either way. And the cool thing is the hotel she booked is cancelable. So ultimately, if they don't do the date swap, we're totally fine. We can drop that hotel. But at least personally speaking, we're covered either way. So we're going to be in the country for a couple of months because we're going to get an Airbnb and stay in Dubai. But we'll drive down for Yas, stay for a week, stay for a weekend. But ultimately, we're covered either way.
way. But interesting to see that there's still a lot of flexibility and fluidity in the calendar. And you and I have talked about this weeks past. I still think there's a lot more change coming than we even expect. I'm still not confident Japan's going to happen. I'm not confident Brazil's going to happen. I think we're absolutely going to see multiple races at Coda at Austin in the United States. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. hoping that Mexico is going to be a, a, a go-ahead. And then I think we can ultimately transition into the next story as well, which is if you do drop Japan from the calendar, you know you could probably backfill that with a race at Coda. But if Brazil drops off, you need to backfill that somewhere as well yeah and it, you know, there, there have been a, a lot of different uh, venues uh, thrown out there but there there's one interesting that uh, perhaps we could go to qatar stay in the middle east with the uh, qatar's losale circuit no perhaps you can give us a little bit more background on this because they do host the uh, moto gp's uh, night race uh, there and the qataris are also they're 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 in, involved in formula one they jointly bid with rsc ventures to take a 35 and a half percent stake in uh, formula one's commercial rights that were held by CBC Capital Partners at the at the time. Anyways, can you tell us a little bit more about this uh, th- this track in Qatar? Which, according to Stefano Domenicali, the Formula One CEO, this is not going to happen. But I don't care what he says because uh, th- this would be kind of exciting. There, it looks like a really cool. You track. know, I would be absolutely open to a second race in Bahrain this year, especially if we could hit that outer circuit. I thought that was a sure, lot of fun. Sure, but yeah. One of the other considerations is that another country in the GCC, another country on the Arabian Peninsula that has a FIA grade one circuit, Qatar has a venue that's potentially ready to go. And and I think a lot of people are like, that's a lot of tracks in this region of the world. But in the middle of a global pandemic, when these countries have these dedicated circuits ready to go, I'm happy to see it. Lucille opened about Mm -hmm. 15 years ago. It was built it was built quickly and on a relatively small budget, which principally translates into an ultra, ultra low attendance capacity. So whereas Abu Dhabi will sit 50 or 60,000 people, Kadia, which is the track that's under construction outside of Riyadh, will sit 50 or 60,000 people. We talk about the fact that Silverstone will host 140,000 or does host 140,000 people on the, the day of the Grand Prix on a Sunday. LaSalle only sits about 8,000 people. It's a single main grandstand that's immediately adjacent to the grid. Now, since the track's opening, it's hosted MotoGP principally in terms of premier motorsport. They've done some touring car racing there, and they've hosted some other things like Porsche Cup, etc., and some test events with some of the junior formulas. It's an interesting circuit in the way that it's designed. There's zero elevation. It feels a little bit like Bahrain in some senses, but the design is really unique in the sense that the grandstands run immediately adjacent to the grid. So you have one long straight, which runs past that grandstand. The track then seems to fold back on itself multiple times. Now, Mm -hmm. I think this is a premier event for MotoGP. It's a track that's great for MotoGP. It's tight. It's twisty. It's very, very technical as far as some of these um, Arabian-based desert tracks are concerned. There isn't a lot of runoff, and the track's not particularly wide. So I don't know how well it would effectively work for Formula One. The other consideration, and this is, I think, where Domenicali is speaking, is from a capacity perspective, it's very small by Formula One standards. And secondly, the garages are certainly not at Formula One standards. And I think the teams would very much object to the tight confines. They'd be forced to Mm. uh, 
forced to utilize. But to your earlier point, this was a hot story that popped up a couple of days ago. It got some traction. People were excited. We could potentially go to Lucille, which means that we could see four different events in this region of the world in one season. Domenicali came out and said, hey, you know what? I think our preference is probably to look at Bahrain first. We have a history there. We know the track. We know the surface. We know the garages. It logistically just makes more sense for us. But you touched on something a couple of minutes ago, which I think is really, really, really interesting. So back in 2015, Stephen Ross, who's Mm -hmm. the principal of RSC Ventures and the Qatari government were looking to partner and purchase Formula One. So this was back when Bernie Eccleston was still the driving financial force behind the sport. Liberty was sniffing around. RSC was sniffing around. And ultimately, it's understood that RSE, the Qatari government, Stephen Ross would step away from their bid and allow Liberty to come forward and take over Formula One with a couple of concessions. One was that Stephen Ross, the owner of the Miami Dolphins, would be given a very financially favorable opportunity to host a Grand Prix in Miami, which Liberty has absolutely followed through on. But it's also been hugely speculated that the Qatari government would be given the opportunity at some point to potentially host Formula One. Now, I don't know that it would necessarily be at Lucille. I think if they were genuinely curious, this track would need extensive work to bring it up to Formula One standards, especially in terms of capacity and garages. But it is interesting that if you go back five or six years, the Qatari government, effectively through the Qatari Sovereign Wealth Fund, Stephen Ross and his RSE Ventures Group were looking to combine forces and buy Formula One, but they graciously stepped aside and let Liberty move forward with their bid with the promise that mm-hmm. there would be some concessions made. And one of those concessions, the Miami GP has, has been fulfilled. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it, it certainly is a, you know, a fascinating story that we can dig these things up and find these, there's these those uh, threads. You start too. to pull on these threads. Yeah. And the story this week was like, well, Qatar could hold an event at Lucille. But when you start digging, like, well, they actually co-bid to buy Formula One a few years ago. And then you start unwinding that thread and it actually goes back to the Miami GP. It's funny how all of these things are interconnected in the world of Formula One. Yeah, I know. It It always seems to come back to, it, it almost seems like sort of circular yeah. stories. It's like you just, you very start there so. and then you end up almost in a, in a place you don't expect, but it's a, a very, very, very familiar uh, situation. So, hey, um, where should we go now? Okay, well, let's talk now about the, the Hungarian yeah, Grand great. Prix. We've got a race coming up in a couple of days. And, uh, well, we're starting to get to the point where the lights haven't been turned off on us just yet, but it's getting that way. So we're back racing this weekend for probably not one of my favorite tracks. It was designed, the Hungara Ring, to be kind of like a very similar track to uh, Monaco, even though at uh, 2.72 miles or 4.38 kilometers, it's it's not quite as compact and tight as, uh, as Monaco is. But still, there really aren't too many opportunities uh, for, for passing here. And sometimes the racing here can be a little bit dull. I hate to be a bit of a, a Debbie Downer here, but we we haven't seen, let's say, an abundance of exciting races here over the years. Not have we? necessarily, no. And I agree. I I don't. I'm not disappointed or saddened when the Hungarian Grand Prix comes up because I like the I like the historical context of the track, and I always find it really sure. interesting that 
This event initially took place in 1986. And if, if you look at a map of the globe from 1986, you quickly begin to understand that Hungary was effectively part of the Soviet Union at that play, point. And for those of you- Oh yeah, it was Eastern Exactly. Bloc. And it, it's fascinating yeah. to think that through Bernie and his commercials rates or rates <laughs> group, they actually managed to find a way to get something as commercial and it, it's strange, right? When you think about all the things that that Eastern Bloc and the Soviet Union stood for, that Formula One, which is which revels in its glory of excess and luxury and all those kind of places, <laughs> found its way into the, the Eastern Bloc. But ultimately, what Bernie's original aspirations were was a street track in Moscow. He wanted to go deep into the heart of the Soviet Union. He wanted a staple banner flagship event in Moscow. It couldn't happen for a number of logistical reasons. Ultimately, he was suggest it was he was encouraged to look at Hungary and Budapest. Originally his designs were on a street track in the city itself. The government authorities were like, we're, we're having no part of that. Let's build you a dedicated track. So they did 20 kilometers to the northeast of the city core. It's it's an interesting track. One of the things you'll hear a lot over the next couple of days is that it's it's a generally underutilized venue. So it becomes very mm-hmm. dusty. And that's okay because typically when you go to a track that doesn't get a ton of use, by the end of the first practice session or the second practice session, the cars have typically really grooved in the tarmac. They've started to lay down a lot of rubber. That rubber continues to compound and add more and more grip. So by the time you get to qualifying, by the time you get to the Grand Prix, the drivers are much more confident. The cars are much more planted. But one of the things that makes this track so interesting is it basically sits at the bowl of a valley. So even during a Grand Prix race weekend, between practice sessions, between FP2 and FP3 and FP3 and qualifying, the track continues to become dusty. It's a dry, arid region. It's extremely hot in the summer. So one of the things that drivers are always concerned about here is grip. And you'll often see some funny business in qualifying in Hungary in the sense that the cars will wait as long as possible in each session to put down their fastest lap because they want as much possible grip on the track as possible. So I always get a kick out of that during the qualifying session, but you're right. It's a relatively short track at 4.4 kilometers. It turns in on itself a couple of times, limited elevation. I like the backdrop. I like to see that fun water park across the highway next to the, to the track. I always think that's <laughs> kind of fun, but not necessarily great racing, but I think given the context of everything we've seen over the last couple of weeks, it's still going to be an intriguing race just because I think we want to see how everything plays out in terms of Red Bull coming back to the track. How is that power unit going to look like? They're trying to salvage the power unit that was in that car at the moment of the crash. How is Mercedes going to look? Are they going to be dialed in? I think there's still a ton of compelling storylines for this weekend, but you're right in the sense that the track in of itself doesn't necessarily have designs on great racing. No, it it doesn't, unfortunately. But, you know, I I guess it's had its moments. But if you look at some of the stats here, so uh, last year, let's just go back. So Lewis was on pole. Podium was uh, uh, Lewis, Verstappen, and uh, Bottas. Uh, Lewis set the fastest lap, which is a 116.627. As we mentioned, the the circuit length is 4.381 kilometers or 2.72 miles. Total race length is 306.6 kilometers or 190.53 miles. 70 laps pit strategy is 
going to be the name of the game because you're not going to see a lot of opportunities uh, for passing. So Lewis is the undisputed king of the Hungaro ring. He's won there eight times, first time in 07, and has won there the last uh, three years in a row, 2018, 19, and 20. And that's twice as many uh, wins as his um, fellow seven-time world champion, Michael Schumacher, who won there four times. Senna won there three times. And then there's a whole bunch of drivers that have won it a couple of times. McLaren, surprisingly, the constructor that has won there the most. They've won there 11 times, but not since uh, 2012. Williams, second most winningest uh, constructor at the Hungaro Ring. They have seven victories, and that's uh, the same as uh, Ferrari. Mercedes have owned this track more or less since, uh, sorry, since uh, 2013. They've won it uh, now five times, and Red Bull has a pair of wins there going back to 2010 and uh, 2014. Now, so this uh, weekend, we're going to see the middle range of the Pirelli uh, tires, the C2 hards, C3 mediums, and the C4 softs. So it's going to be an interesting one. So qualifying is really going to be everything going into this race on Sunday afternoon, but it's looking like it should be fairly decent. I'm just uh, trying to get what the, um, you know, the, the next uh, couple of days, the weather is going to look like. So Saturday is going to be, oh, it's calling for a possibility of the uh, thunderstorms, 80%, high of 84 degrees Fahrenheit and a low of 64 degrees. So that uh, should be interesting. And uh, Friday during the day, a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, warm, sunny, cloudy, with a bit of a wind, and low nineties for a uh, a daytime high. So there you go. A couple of you dare. Yeah, go I was ahead. just going to add sorry. a couple of other interesting facts as well, and I highlighted these from F1Destinations.com because I thought these were pretty interesting. In every season from 2005 to 2017, the winner of the Hungarian Grand Prix failed to go on to win the Drivers' Championship. In fact, in its history, there have only been 11 occasions where the winner of the event has won the title in the same year. Uh, Robert Kubica is the only driver to have been disqualified from a race at the Hungaroring Ring in his Grand Prix debut. The Polish <laughs> driver finished seventh, was later disqualified. And by the way, we're going to see Robert Kubica this weekend in a practice session. And that is very specifically by design because given the proximity of Hungary to Poland, historically when Robert Kubica was on the grid, you would typically see thousands of Polish fans come down sure, to yep. this event, which I always thought was very, very interesting. And one other quick stat here here as well. And this one is mathematically, it's difficult to imagine how this could even have happened, but Ferrari has been present at every Hungarian Grand Prix since 1986, which was the inaugural year we went to this country and to this track. But it took until 1999 for both of their cars to reach the checkered flag in the same race here. So for 13 seasons, Ferrari showed up, had two cars in the grid, but it took till the 14th year for both of those cars to finish the same race at the same time, which is just, which is just remarkable. Um, and one other piece too, and this is, this is less of an exciting ins- or a exciting story. But for those of you that remember back in 2009, Felipe Massa was the victim of a freak accident when a piece of the suspension from oh, gosh, Rubens yeah. Barrichello's car hit him hit in the helmet. And Ultimately, he ended up getting or suffering some quite some serious eye injury, but ultimately 
it was another instance where the FIA ultimately stepped in with the helmet manufacturers and they heavily modified the helmets going forward. So the helmets that we see in Formula One today have much smaller visor openings. So the amount of the helmet that is cut away to provide visibility to the driver is much smaller now than it was during the 2009 season. And part of that was to Mm -hmm. prevent situations like this where a piece of debris could so easily cut through that cutaway and potentially impact the driver's face. But but yeah, just a couple of interesting stats from the the past of the Hungaroring. I completely forgotten about that. That was shocking at the time when that happened. That was yeah. I would encourage people to Google this one. Not and again, it's it's okay to look at in the sense that he recovered and he continued to race and be competitive and all those things. But it was absolutely terrifying when it happened because yeah, it was very upsetting uh, absolutely because you didn't realize what happened at first because he was basically approaching a corner but went straight through the gravel into the wall and that throttle was still applied. So as the car is pinned to the wall, it's continuing to spin the tires because the throttle's on. Mm -hmm. And it was because the poor driver was knocked unconscious while at speed because this piece of suspension had broken away from Ruben Barrichello's Braun GP car. Yeah, he was damn lucky that, uh, that, uh, you know, he didn't get hurt more than than he was. Hey, Mark, before we go, let's just remind everybody the standings here in both the Drivers' and Constructors' Championships since it's been a couple of weeks. And the driver's side, Verstappen leading the way, 185 points. Lewis Hamilton second with 177. Lando Norris third with 113. Valtteri Bottas, 108. Sergio Perez rounding out the top five with 104. Now going over the Constructors' uh, Championship, getting a little bit uh, tighter there. Red Bull on top, still 289. Mercedes now 285 points in second. McLaren 163. Ferrari 148. And then fifth is Alpha Tauri with 149. So, of course, we're going to be keeping our eyes on the championship rivals, Verstappen and Hamilton, this weekend. And what's going to go on between them and, of course, their supporting cast in Valtteri Bottas and Sergio Perez. And what these two teams do and how it shapes the tri- the championships going forward. But by all means... Keep your eyes on McLaren. Keep your eyes on Ferrari. There's less than 20 points separating these two teams in third and fourth in the championship. Ferrari been a pleasant surprise uh, this year. It has uh, done thus far better than expected. I think that this one could go down to the wire. So I'm going to be watching this the, this battle between McLaren and Ferrari for uh, the, the the rest of the way. So this could be an interesting one. Again, when it comes to making a prediction, I was for just going to ask. I, I was just going to ask who you who you've got for this race weekend. Uh, you know, I, I think I'm going to go with. Um, I mean, logic, I, I think, uh, dictates that you go with Hamilton just because he's won it eight times and uh, he's won it four, was it, three out of the last four years. But I, I just have a feeling that uh, that Max, despite the fact that he's had a couple of things to say in the past uh, week or two after Silverstone, I mean, it doesn't sound like he's really feeling any ill effects of that, uh, that big shunt that he had at Silverstone the other week. I think he's going to be motivated. I think he's kind of stayed out of the press and maybe just focused more on his own business. And therefore, I think he's going to be extra motivated. Now, whether the the Mercedes or the, the Red Bull is better suited to this track, that's a great question. We'll find out in a couple of hours when we get to, to free practice and then over the next couple of days. But again, qualifying is key. And then when it comes down to it. It just seems that Lewis is always able to stick that one hot lap in there that uh, that 
you know, when it's really needed. And I think that if he gets on pole, then he's, you got to favor him to win the race. But I, I don't know. I just have a feeling that uh, Verstappen is going to bounce back after uh, Silverstone and take this one. I'm curious to hear what you have to I say. I agree in the sense that I think Max Verstappen will physically and mentally be there. And I think he's going to be dialed in. But one of our listeners made a really great observation during the Spaces chat earlier this evening, which is we've got to be very cognizant of the fact that Red Bull is salvaging the power unit out of that car that went into the wall at COPS last, well, I guess two weekends ago. And I don't know what that's necessarily going to look like. So they were able to send it (laughs) to Japan. They were able to do some emergency surgery. There were certain components that they were able to replace. So non-performance aiding components. So they weren't providing any upgrades, but they were restoring the engine. My question is going to be ultimately how much confidence does Red Bull have in that power unit and and how much power are they going to dial up? How hot are they going to run that power unit? And maybe maybe they... they slowly turn it up as we go through FP1, FP2, FP3 into qualifying to get a sense of where that unit is. Maybe they pack a second power unit because maybe they get to free practice two or free practice three and say, it's not worth the risk. Let's swap in a new power unit, knowing that we're going to have to go to a fourth mm-hmm. later in the season and there's going to be an associated grid penalty. But I'm going to be very curious to see how Red Bull approaches the power unit because maybe ultimately they're in a position where they've got to keep it dialed down and they're not getting the power that they're used to getting. I'm very curious to see. Very, very curious to see. But my sense is the same as yours, which is if the power units, if the power unit is dialed in, if it's delivering the power that we've seen the last few weekends, I have every reason to think that Max is going to be dialed in as well. Lewis has a bit of an edge just because he's been racing here since 2007. He's won here, like you said, eight times. He's supremely capable. This is a track that certainly plays into his capabilities. Ultimately, I think the question is just how dialed in is Max and what does that power unit look like? But hopefully we get a great Grand Prix. And I think going down the grid, to your point, I think it's going to be exciting to see what that Mercedes, sorry, what that Ferrari McLaren battle looks like. And it'll be very interesting to see how Sergio responds after a really tough weekend at the British Grand Prix. And we probably would have talked about that a lot more if not for the crash between Lewis and Max on lap one. (laughs) But he did not have a great weekend. And I'm sure he is looking to bounce back because, and I don't need to reinforce this because all of our listeners know this, he's not under contract next year. So he's probably feeling the pressure as much as anybody is right now. Yeah, both uh, Red Bull and Perez and Verstappen, for that matter, they need to have a big weekend if they're going to get back to where they were a couple of weeks ago and really take back the the, the championship that Mercedes are really threatening to snatch away from them on, on both fronts, both in the drivers and in the constructors. So there you go. Well, I, th- I think that's pretty close to where we want to be for another night. Thank you all for joining in. Uh, thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for those of you that have joined us again on the live stream. We'll be back on Sunday night to break this one down and talk about it. Hopefully this is going to be an exciting race. And until then, thank you for, for tuning in. If you want to get in touch, by all means, do so on Twitter at ScuderiaF1Pod and send an email ScuderiaF1Pod at gmail.com and Mark, just because it was so much fun on Mailbag Monday, I think I'm going to make my sign off again one of my favorites clear eyes, full hearts can't lose, everybody have a great weekend, we'll see you again on Sunday night, bye for now